name's Chris. Uh, so thankful you're here. Thanks for joining us online as well. And we are uh, just so grateful to be together. So uh, did anyone say you're thankful for power uh, as you were sharing? There we go, right? All right, so quick survey here. How many people lost power? All right, how many are still without power? You. All right. So, oh, all right. So I am just thankful that we can be here in um, with electricity, with heat, uh, together, more importantly, and had the time to worship this morning. We're going to be in Matthew. So I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. And as you turn there, when I was in high school, uh, the, uh, there was a challenge that I participated in sometimes when I was with my friends, and it involved the mall in Battle Creek. And, um, and amazingly, I didn't know this, this store is still there. I found that out this week. Anyone ever been to the Buckle or heard of the Buckle? All right, I see some people shaking heads like, no, I don't know what that is. Uh, so there's something called the Buckle Challenge. Has anyone participated or heard about the Buckle Challenge? Am I the only one? In- oh, wait, yes! All right, Colleen is... She went to high school over there. So, all right, there we go. So the buckle challenge, this is how it worked. You stood in the mall, and your goal was to walk to the back of the store, touch the wall, like not go back to the employees part, just the back wall of the, the display there, and then turn around and make it out to the mall again without having an employee talk to you. <laughs> now, you may be saying, like, seriously, come on, that's easy. But Buckle proclaims it is because they have excellent customer service that you cannot do this. But I proclaim that they're working on commission and they're pushy, right? So you would do this. We figured out strategies where we'd have someone go one direction to try to pull the employee a certain way where the other person could scoot back. I mean, you'd sprint in. You'd kind of go covert underneath some coat racks sometimes, whatever it may be. You found a way to get in there. And this was the Buckle Challenge. Now, some of you may go try the Buckle Challenge. I don't know if it still works, so, uh, um, it, but you could do that. One of the things I love about Jesus is that Jesus is not pushy. Jesus is, he pursues us, but he's not pushy. Like he comes to us when we come to him. He, he desires that none will perish, but he's not pushy. He invites us. He welcomes us. He shows us what could be. He shows us possibilities, and then he says it's up to you. He desires that none will perish, but the decision is ours, whether we will follow after. Consider some of the ways that Jesus does not force us, the welcome that he has. In Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. John 7, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Jesus realized there's other places. He can go for some sort of refreshment, spiritual Come to me. Then in John 21, I love this. Jesus said, come and have breakfast. Let's have a meal. He invites us. John 1, come and you will see. Mark 6, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Matthew 25, come, you who are blessed by my Father, and take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. These are invitations that Jesus says, come to me. Come, I'll give you rest. Come, share this together. There's another invitation in Matthew chapter 4. Really, this Lenten season, what began on Ash Wednesday this past Wednesday and carries us to Easter is an invitation to Jesus. It is a slow and steady walk with Jesus towards the cross and then this ultimate celebration in Easter. 
It is a time of reflection of what's going on inside of me. What is happening here and what is that overflow? Is it honoring to God? Am, am I pleased with it? Is this who I want to be? And Jesus, when he ministered, as he ministers, he called people to himself. So in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, it says this. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and they followed him. Now, this story is probably familiar to many of you here. You've heard about how Jesus called his disciples. You're like, yeah, this is normal. But let's try to remove what we know for a moment. There's a guy walking by the water's edge, and he says, hey, um, guys, Peter and Andrew, right? I see that you're working. What I want you to do is I want you to come and follow me. And yep, you're, you're fishing for fish. I want you to fish for people. I'm going to send you out. And what do they do? They follow him. Is that what you would have done? Someone comes to your job, like, hey, I, I know you're, you're working right now. Why don't you come follow me? I've got a different job for you. Verse 21, it happens again. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing the nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Again, James, John. Hey, Zebedee, I see your boys are working with you. That's really, really great. I need them. And they follow. I mean, what is happening here? Is this like a normal, everyday type of occurrence? I mean, is, it, is this something that you, you like to do? It's like, I come in like, Noah, come and follow me. Is walk over here. Come and follow me. Lori, come and follow me. Annie, come and follow me. No one, no one follows. Right? Right? I mean, it's, it's bizarre because you're sitting here and you're really uncomfortable now that I'm walking around and I saw eyes just kind of diverting down of like, <laughs> please don't look at me, Chris, please. But it's not normal. I mean, Noah just nodded at me like, yep, yeah, all right. <laughs> I'm not following you. I'm sitting here. It's odd. It's uncomfortable. It's different. Even as I continue to stand down here, I'm making you uncomfortable. Because you're thinking, don't ask me. But Jesus called his disciples. They didn't know that they were going to be disciples at this point. I mean, they had already been through schooling and possibly rejected by other rabbis who were coming along. This is part of the reason that they would have been like, oh, a rabbi sees potential in me. This, care, this, 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 this person is seeing something in me, and I'm going to follow after them. And Jesus does something with his disciples. Verse 23 continues on. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So not only 
were the disciples following after him, those that he called and were training, but there were other people who were like, this, something's happening here. We're seeing a change. We want to be a part. And Jesus even at one point said, you're going to do greater things than what I've done. This seems pretty great of what he was doing. But Jesus wasn't asking them just to follow the leader. He was asking them to transform their life, to set down their nets. They had a calling that they were in. They were working with their father. They were fishing. And Jesus is like, no, I have something else. But you need to leave that behind. You need to walk away from these things. Last Wednesday, we entered the Lenten season. And as I mentioned, is that it's a season of self-examination and repentance and prayer, fasting, and self-denial. It's a season where we eagerly anticipate the resurrection of Jesus, but not running past the cross. Over the next number of weeks during this Lenten season, we're going to walk through a series called Follow Me. And we're going to walk through the gospel according to Matthew. And we're going to walk just seeing what Jesus is doing as he's bringing disciples along, followers of him along. And what does that mean for us today? And so if you're following the reading plan, you've already read through the first four chapters of Matthew. You can jump in this week as well. But Matthew is the first of four Gospels, and it's found in the New Testament. Many of you know this already, but I'm going to say this here again, is that the Bible is split into two sections. The Old Testament is the first 39 writings, and the New Testament, which is the last uh, 27 writings. And we see that there is in the Old Testament, there is creation narrative. There is the fall when sin entered the picture. There's a story of Israel. And in the New Testament, there's a story of Jesus, the story of the church, and ultimately the story of new creation. And if you were with us the last number of weeks, we walked through these six parts of a movement of you're not your own that were bought at a price. And so we looked at the overview, overarching narrative of Scripture. But in the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew writes as one that was called by Jesus. Matthew was sitting at his tax collector booth. He was working for the Roman government. He's working for Herod. And Jesus came along and called him as well. And so you have a narrative of one who was called and one who turned from their former way of life and followed. Matthew wrote in the late 50s and early 60s, and he gave an account of Jesus, and Jesus as the Messiah King, the fulfillment of the prophecy, the covenant made with David that someone would come from David's line that would be Savior of the world. And he wanted people who read this gospel to see this trace through, that he was the divine king, the divine authority, that he was the fulfillment of all that had been written. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It'll be on the screen here as well. I'm guessing if you read along with us or if you've read Matthew, you may skip the first 17 verses, right? Or read through them really quick. It's a lot of names, a lot of people. But this first verse is probably not your life verse. It is probably not a verse you have framed in some pretty picture in your home or above your sink or whatever. But this is one of the most important verses in Scripture. Because what it is, is it's linking Jesus to the Old Testament. It's linking Jesus in a huge way. The genealogies were the way that family lineages were, were traced just as they are now. But who you were so connected to where you've come from. 
And here Matthew is saying Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the one who God covenanted with, that there would be someone that would come in his lineage that would sit on the throne and rule. The son of Abraham, the one that God covenanted with, that Abraham and his descendants would be a great people, a great nation that would fulfill what God has been calling all along. Then you see the name Jesus. The name Jesus meaning, literally meaning God saves, Yahweh saves. And then in the translation that you have, it may say Messiah like it is on the screen, or it may say Christ. It means anointed one. So this is a packed full verse. Linking Jesus as Messiah, the son of David, as the son of Abraham. And Matthew continues this in his gospel. Just in the first three chapters, there's a number of times where he says, this is what the prophet said. This is how the prophet was saying these different things, and and this is how it's being fulfilled. And then if that wasn't enough, these names that maybe you skip over in this first chapter here, there are all sorts of people. If you're doing a family lineage, especially in Jesus' time, you want to have the most prominent, well-known, respectable people there so people look highly upon you. But I love in Jesus' lineage that there are all types of people. There are men, there are women, there are adulterers, there are prostitutes, there are heroes, there are Gentiles. Really, Matthew is saying he's from this lineage, but he's Savior of all. Jesus is Savior of all. Turn with me to chapter 3. Chapter 3, someone enters this narrative named John the Baptist. And it says this, starting in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here you go. Here's this reference back to one of the prophecies. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So that Jesus was coming, but John the Baptist would make this path straight and clear for him. Isaiah is saying this, and, and John says, what you need to do is you need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Let's take a moment with this phrase here, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. When we look at kingdom of heaven, it's very easy to think about a place far off in another time. We're on earth, and the kingdom of heaven is elsewhere. 31 times Matthew uses this phrase, kingdom of heaven, in his gospel. The other gospel writers use it zero times. Why? Well, they use a different phrase. They use the phrase kingdom of God. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven are the same. It's where the rule of God is taking place, where what he says should be done is happening. It links back to the way Jesus taught us to pray, and we talked about the ultimate fulfillment last, last week of this new creation of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so what John the Baptist and then what Jesus is going to say when he says this here, he's using this phrase kingdom of heaven as where God's kingdom is unfolding. The things that God wants done are happening. And kingdoms are not a new thought then nor now. Because all around us, we have kingdoms of lust and kingdoms of violence and kingdoms of hate and kingdoms of injustice that are unfolding around us. And we talked about last week about how all of creation groans. We groan. We have this kind of just like, ah, type of feeling. Because there's another kingdom at hand. In this new creation, familiar words that are often said 
especially when someone passes away, is that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. This fulfillment of what is to come, it is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, ultimately this fulfillment of where what Jesus once done is done. And so Jesus wasn't saying, you just hang out here on earth for a little while. You know, it's going to be uncomfortable, but eventually I'm going to get you out of here. That's not the point of Scripture. See, the kingdom of heaven is God is this rule and reign and power that is present. But Jesus, too, said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near in Matthew chapter 4. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. But Jesus isn't saying this place far off has come near to you. Jesus is saying, I've come near to you. I'm part of this ultimate plan of redemption, of renewal here. The Father is unfolding the plan now. So we have this kingdom of heaven concept of where his rule, reign, and power is taking place. But then he uses this word repent. I'm guessing you've not used the word repent very often this week, right? And it's a little, little awkward if you tell your kid, you need to repent right now because you disobeyed me, or your boss comes to you and says, you need to repent because you didn't complete this, right? It's a strong word, and it's a word that is, is translated into metanoite. It means to change our mind purpose, to change the inner person to conform and accept the will of God. Changes my direction. So this is a massive change that starts internally and then overflows into the external. There's a Jewish historian named Josephus who was born about the same time Jesus died and then wrote in a similar time that the gospel writers wrote. And so much of what we know about the first century is because Josephus wrote and recorded what was happening in this time. And in Josephus' autobiography, he told of a time where he was a, an army commander. And what his job was is he was to go and stop some rebel Galileans from revolting against Rome. And so as he approached this rebel commander, in Greek, he, he, said, these, he said these words right here. This is just profound. I mean, this is good, right? right? You see what he was saying? You see the impact that this was having? Powerful. Here we go. Let's translate. All right. He said this. He said, repent and believe in me. So Josephus was going, and there's someone that was revolting against Rome, and he was sent to stop them, and he said, repent and believe in me? I mean, was this some sort of like messianic complex where he was trying to be the savior, where this person needed to confess all their sins and put their faith in him? Sort of, but not the messianic part. What were you saying? He was saying you need to confess what you've done wrong, how you've been revolting, and you need to believe the words that I'm telling you right now, that this is the way to go. This is the way to live. You need to stop your rebellion. You need to repent and to believe what I'm telling you. So when Jesus used repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, when John the Baptist said this, they were saying, you, you need to lay down your kingdoms, your ways, your ways that you've been rebelling against God's kingdom. And you need to believe in Jesus. You need to believe in that God has sent Jesus. You need to lay down your agendas. You need to join the mission that Jesus is on. Remember, it's anywhere that God's rule and reign and power unfold. 
You need to believe in that. And so it is trusting Jesus for our salvation. There's the old picture and illustration of we all have a throne in our life, and either I'm sitting on my throne or God's sitting on that throne. Who is ruling my life? Whose kingdom am I walking in? And so it is trusting Jesus for salvation, but it's also forgiving one another. It's also showing mercy. It's loving when love is not deserved. It's joy overflowing. It's peace when there's pain. It's protecting the vulnerable and the weak around us. It's kindness towards a stranger, goodness towards neighbors, gentleness in a loving and respectful way when we just want to say all sorts of hurtful things. It's self-control. It's being in step with Jesus. It's repenting from all the things that just flow from our flesh. Following Jesus. It's repenting. It's changing our mind, the way we believe, but it's also changing our actions. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 16. He said, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross. Follow me. We don't like to deny ourselves. We want to believe and then sort of have our actions and life impacted. But Jesus said, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross and then follow me. Because we want to jump at following Jesus. I'm like, hey, I'm following Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm in. I don't want to repent of this thing. I don't want to let this thing go. This thing that I've been holding on to or justifying or whatever it may be, I don't want to let go. Jesus calls us to repent. More than an emotion, more than a feeling, more than behavior modification. There's two different words that you get talked about in some theological conversations of, of how we respond to sin when it comes to repentance and what real repentance is. It's attrition and uh, contrition. The first word that says attrition means that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I'm sorry for what I've done, but really it's out of motivation that I'm going to get in trouble. There's going to be punishment attached to it. So my motivation is fear. So I'm going to act like I'm going to say that I'm turning from this thing, but really I'm just I'm afraid of what people are going to think of me or what if people find out or... This is the bargaining that happens with God of like, oh no, oh no, I did this thing and, and Lord, please don't let this person find out. Please, I'll, I'll do anything. I'll, I'll go to church on Sunday. I'll read my Bible. I'll, I'll pray. I'll, whatever it is. It's this fear. We are often motivated to repent out of fear. But really what God wants is a, a contrite heart, this contrition, is that it's not this fear of getting caught but rather, it's a brokenness within me because I offended God. Because God loves me so much that it grieves his Holy Spirit that I chose whatever this was outside of his will. In Psalm 51, it says this, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. The psalmist is saying it's brokenness, this brokenness that changes me, not fear. Because if you get this prayer answered, then 
you know, whoever it is or whatever the situation was not revealed, you're like, oh, phew. Then you go back to something else. Because motivation is fear. And I think about my kids is that when I correct them or Joanna corrects them, I don't want them to fear me. I don't want fear to be the motivation for my kids of why they choose to listen to me or they choose to obey because they think they're going to get in trouble or they think they're going to lose something. I want my kids to know my heart, that I love them, that I have the best in mind for them, that I'm saying this or choosing this because I intend good for them. That's the relationship I want with my kids. And this is the type of relationship that God wants with you. Not that you respond in fear. You get caught, but rather because God loves you so much. He wants you to know that love. Scripture calls this godly sorrow. And Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians. And listen to his words here. He said, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repent. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. What Paul is saying here is that it was the Spirit of God that brought conviction. He wrote this letter and he pointed this out. And it wasn't his manipulation or wise words or anything like that. It was the Spirit of God that was working in the recipients of that letter of like, oh, we've grieved God because of this sin. So Paul's getting at here saying, why I wrote? And verse 11 says, see this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. The people at Corinth, they turned because they cherished God's heart and their relationship with him far greater than saving face. God spoke to the Israelites and through the prophet Ezekiel. And he talked about two different types of hearts that we can have and that they have. And he said this. He said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I'm saying I don't want behavior modification. I'll give you a new heart. I love you so much. I, I don't want you to settle for this. I don't want you to justify whatever it is. I'll give you a new heart so that you can fully follow after me. I want to forgive you. And I forgive you because I love you. It's who God is. Nature. It's not just belief, but it's a dynamic invitation to know God's heart, to walk with someone who deeply loves you. The psalmist in Psalm 32 can see a wrestling going on of understanding the heart of God and, and the pull back and forth. 
says this, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Maybe you felt like these next two verses. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Though my groaning all day long, through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped, as in the heat of summer. This heaviness of, just let the sin sit in me. I know God is a God who loves and forgives, and it's his nature, it's his blessing. But I just keep silent, and I just, it ebbs at me, and it eats at me. The psalmist says this in verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You forgave the guilt of my sin. Then I acknowledged, yep, it's there. Justified it. Explained it away. I'm not going to cover it up anymore. I'm done covering it up. God, you forgave my sin as soon as I exposed it. As soon as I repented from it. Not only did I believe you're good, but I leaned into and walked in your goodness. That was my action out of it. We're invited to follow Jesus. Where we started earlier is that God is not pushy. He desires relationship with you. He longs for a relationship with you, but he's not pushy. He welcomes you. He invites you. And in the book of Revelation, there's churches that are spoken to, to a number of the churches, repent, 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 turn, believe differently and act differently. And Jesus went and he called his disciples, he said, lay down your nets and come and follow me. Repent, turn from that old way and follow me. And he's calling us that same way, he says, what is that thing that we continue to hold on to or those things we continue to hold on to? the kingdoms, allegiances, whatever it is, sin. Jesus is saying, repent, lay it down, and follow after me. Follow after me. Mine, change your direction. Claim allegiance to Jesus and follow him. This morning I was in here, and this picture for me has blended into the background. I have forgotten that this picture of Jesus is here. And maybe for many of you, you're just now noticing it for the first time or maybe again. And as I looked at this picture this morning, I love the gentleness of Jesus. Follow me. There's a welcome. Open hand. Come, follow me. Repent. Leave that stuff behind. Come and follow Be transformed by Jesus. So this morning, I'm going to invite you to take a few minutes and reflect. I don't, I don't want to just rush through this in part here. Is whatever the Spirit of God may be doing in you, I'm going to ask you to, to pray on that, to reflect on that, to chew on that a little bit of, 
of what kingdoms am I holding on to? How am I not following after Jesus? What sin am I allowing to sit here? And to take the time to confess. Take that time to give it to God. To receive the forgiveness. He is so willing. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is we're going to play a song. And the song is called Repentance. And listen to the words. Pray the words. Just pray. Whatever it may be. Um, but take this time to listen to the Spirit. Listen to the one who welcomes and the one who transforms us bit by bit. So however you do this, you can close your eyes, keep them open, whatever it may be. Focus on Jesus, focus on the cross. Take a few minutes to listen to this song. Never can the Can't budge the Milky Way When the lights are kingdom high, a babble of modern day, I lost the throne I built on my own, you love me just the same, this is my repentance, I'm sorry. coming home this is my repentance I'm sorry I love you I'm coming home give me the grace to
Jesus. Lord, you're the one that calls us home with open arms, with open hands. Jesus, may your spirit continue to move in this place. Jesus, for people who have first time surrendering you to you today, God, that they say, sorry, sinner. Thank you for your forgiveness. I love you. Coming home. Or for those of us that have followed after you, the same thing. Jesus, sorry. God, we're coming home. Jesus, it's so good. Passions, your mercies are new every day. Jesus, thank you that you invite us to follow you. Jesus, I pray that you would bring about, that in this season, a, a great level of humility, a brokenness, reflection, got a time to draw near to your heart that you would continue to do what you've begun here in individuals, but in this gathering. Jesus, we love you. Father, we give you thanks. Say this in your name.